This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Friday, December 6, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, the other day, I praised Chuck Todd. And, you know, he deserved my praise. But do not think I'm going all wobbly on my general dyspepsia towards our interlocutors. There is a Chuck Todd tendency that I would like to highlight and thereby eradicate. That's at least how it works in my brain. And this is a good time to bring it up because this pretty much right now, this is the weekend that will determine the college football playoffs. Now, maybe you're thinking, as I just said, that I don't care about the college football playoffs. Yeah, maybe you don't. Maybe you just like listening to podcasts and watching TV shows about politics, so you will like what I'm about to say or what I'm about to highlight. Because what I would like to do is give you some idea of this tendency of Chuck Todd's. It's not endemic to Chuck Todd, but it is somewhat of an epidemic with Chuck Todd. Here, this just from last weekend. Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota. Uh, sorry about uh, the University of Minnesota yesterday, but it's been a great Okay, season. that is true. Rose season. Ball was in our reach. It's we been will a good see. season. We Still a heck see. of a season. Yes. Row, row the boat. That was Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar. As you could tell, here's Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. We will uh, leave it there, Senator Kennedy, uh, Republican from Louisiana. You guys didn't get tripped up this weekend, so LSU is clear sailing for next week. But don't blow it. College football. Sometimes it's baseball. Sometimes it's another sport. But Chuck Todd, huge Miami Hurricanes fan, always finds a chance to bond over college football. Oh, it settles all disputes. Be Republican, Democrat, or crazy conspiracy, pro-Ukrainian Republican like Senator Kennedy. No matter how tough the questions, Chuck Todd thinks, little college football bonding, always the proper tonic. Let me say this, and I vow to you right here, right now, to you, my listeners, that I will vote for any politician who, when confronted with Chuck Todd's solicitude on the topic of college football, says something like, you know, I actually don't care for college sports. And you know just the man to do it, right? Well, we'll have to leave it there. Senator Sanders, thanks for coming on. I see your home state college team is on the ice tonight. Good luck to the Catamounts. Sorry, Chuck. I cannot abide the indentured servitude nature of college sports. Plus, Vermont's 1-9-2. We're terrible. We're terrible, Chuck. He would get my vote. On the show today, I spiel about Cory Booker's explanation for why Kamala Harris dropped out. Mm-hmm. But first, the researchers who hired Steele to put together the Steele dossier have been dragged through the mud by defenders of Donald Trump. But in truth, Glenn Simpson and his Fusion GPS partner, Peter Fritch, are in fact top-notch researchers who unearthed a lot of info that is deserving of an airing. Glenn Simpson stopped by to talk about his history as a journalist, a researcher, and a participant in a presidential investigation. The Steele dossier, Fusion GPS, Ukraine, Paul Manafort, Oleg Deripskaya, 
ostrich skin jackets. It's all there in Crime and Progress, inside the Steele dossier and the Fusion GPS investigation of Donald Trump by the men who were the co-founders of Fusion GPS, who hired Steele to assemble what became known as his dossier, which was actually a collection of over 17 documents. Glenn Simpson and Peter Frisch are those men. Glenn Simpson joins me now. Thanks for coming on, Glenn. Hi, Mike. So there is a scene in the book when you first get the first report, the first portion of what would become known as the Steele dossier, and you and your partner, Peter Fritch, are reading it in your room, and you say, and I could say this on the show, oh, fuck. Was there ever a moment like that pre-Steele dossier, just his dealings that may have convinced you this is not a guy who should be president, but were there any oh, fuck moments that you think either the media or his political rivals didn't follow up on? Well, there was definitely an oh fuck or an oh shit moment when Paul Manafort, you know, walked onto the scene. This was someone that my partner and I had covered at the Wall Street Journal. We knew about his dealings with various oligarchs in the former Soviet Union from stories we'd written about him at the Journal. So he was certainly not someone who was fit and proper to be helming a presidential campaign. And there was definitely an oh shit moment. What the hell is he doing here? Was Christopher Steele someone you knew from your days of journalism? He was not. We sort of lived parallel lives. We worked on a lot of the same issues. And then we retired at almost the exact same time in 2009. And so we were introduced by mutual friends in 2010 because they knew of our shared interest in kleptocracy and oligarchs. Yes, I think in the book you point out, you know, you're both born in 1964. You both had similar careers. You were both, like you said, parallel lives. What could Christopher Steele find via his methods and connections that you couldn't via your skills as a journalist or what you were doing at Fusion GPS? Well, so I was a document hound, as they call it in journalism, when I was in journalism. So my specialty really is finding public records and sometimes you know, in, in hidden places and that sort of thing. But generally, it's a, it's a public records-oriented job. That became even more so after I left the newspaper and I was unable to approach people directly to interview them because most of the time my clients, you know, don't allow me to do that or allow me to say who I'm working for. So I left behind the interviewing side of journalism when I started my business. Chris, on the other hand, is an expert in finding ways to interview people and gather human intelligence, as it's called, which is a skill that carries over from his work in the British government. So there's some stuff, you know, about Romanians running around or whatever that I don't know that has been proved or disproved. But let's just take possibly the Michael Cohen visiting Prague. He says he never did it. And he essentially turned state's evidence and was pretty honest about a lot of his misdeeds and served time on that. So that led a lot of observers, fair-minded observers, I count myself as one, to say, okay, maybe that wasn't true. And I've heard and read in interviews, but you could characterize it how you'd like. Okay, maybe that is likely doubtful. Why was that in there? And what's your analysis of why the dossier got it wrong if it did get it wrong? Well, what we say about this in the book is that you know, doubts have been raised about the accuracy of this account. We go on to say, and I still think today, that in general, we believe that this story, this information was provided to us as credible. We, of course, have a, a little bit of insight into where it comes from. And we can say that, you know, subsequent efforts to look into this have not dissuaded us or made us think that this is somehow made up. Having said that, is there some noise in their reporting? That would be unsurprising. Anytime that you're gathering information from human beings, there is always some, you know, there's always some noise in the reporting. So 
you got witnesses to a car accident. One guy says the car was going 50 miles an hour. He's sure of it. The other says, no, no, it was 35. One guy says the car was aqua. The other one says it's blue. I mean, that's normal. So is there something inaccurate about this? Happy to accept that. In fact, we would be happy to accept it if it turns out to be not true at all, because this is not, you know, the Bible or, or, or the tablets. This is, you know, a piece of field reporting in which you would expect not everything would turn out to be exactly right. If the P-tape, the reports of golden showers, which originally made you say, oh, fuck, if that forever remains unproved, we don't know one way or the other, do you regret that it was in the report? I regret that it turned out to be the distraction that it was, and I think it really diverted people's attention from the much more important finding, which was that the government of Russia was conducting a covert operation to elect Donald Trump, the president of the United States, and that at some level, Donald Trump was witting to this and encouraging it and cooperating in it. And that really was always the thing that freaked me out and concerned me and that I thought was the thing that needed to be dealt with by U.S. law enforcement. What we don't regret is not tinkering with Chris's work in any way. And we felt that, you know, it would be wrong for us to sort of edit his reports in any way in sort of anticipation of how things might be received. We just, you know, he wanted to give this stuff to the FBI. He's the national security guy. We're ex-journalists. We said, Chris, if you believe that this needs to be done and this is the right thing to do, then you go ahead and do it. And we certainly don't regret that at all. Now, the theory of the uh, why why Russia would uh, do these this golden shower exercises to develop compromise on Trump. I have a few questions about that. Don't they already have much better compromise? How great compromise would be? I mean, the, the allegation that Trump watched it, he stood there while it happened. Okay, I don't know how horribly embarrassing that is. Does he act like someone who has specific compromise on him versus maybe some of his other motivations, which right. is he'd like to do business with Russia? Right. Well, I mean, I, that, I agree with a lot of what you just said. It never seemed to me like this was the best piece of blackmail because Donald Trump is someone who already likes to be known as someone who engages in a lot of sexual activity. So I don't know how you could really blackmail him on something like this. But the compromise doesn't actually refer to sexual blackmail. It refers to blackmail in general. But it doesn't and, have to, right? And leverage, right. So your premise here, which is don't they already have enough other stuff, I would agree with that. And I think that's what's been proven, right, which is they did have compromise. They do have compromise on him. He was doing a deal with the Kremlin in the middle of the 2016 election, and he had kept that secret from the American people. That is all the compromise you would need. There were so many parts of the dossier and your reporting that seem to come tantalizingly close to proving a crime. I think of all these condo deals in Florida where Russian oligarchs get paid, you know, four times the amount, the going rate, like the set records for sales. And it looks like, I don't know, this is just a weird end around to get Donald Trump a line of credit. I think of all the dealings that the New Yorker reported on of possible Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations right. in, say, Baku, which, reading between the lines, maybe you were the ones who put that in Remnick's ear. I don't know. Uh, we were not. But, we've been accused okay. of it, but we weren't. <laughs> but it just, I was 
thinking, hoping that the Mueller report would look at one or two of these strands and really nail it down. Right. And it seemed to me that he focused on the big strands, the Trump Tower meeting, the huge strands that weren't 100% nailed down, that certainly... They seem to be smoke. He found more smoke, but I don't know that he ever found fire right. anywhere. Well, and the, I thought yeah. he could have. Well, so we obviously were disappointed by that too. What we say in the book, our interpretation of this, and I was going to actually mention this when we were discussing the Prague issue with Michael Cohen, there seems to be another investigation. Mueller claimed there is a counterintelligence investigation that is looking into some of these deeper issues that weren't really part of Mueller's mandate. So we don't know what's going on with that investigation, but presumably that's where they are trying to figure out whether Russian money has compromised the president in a sort of longer term, deeper way. And it may well be where they are addressing this whole Prague issue. I mean, the Prague issue is really weird, given how all the attention that it's gotten. For for Mueller to not really address it is just strange. Yeah. It's just and then again, he didn't he didn't interview the president, right? So, yeah. but the money thing, obviously, is something that we spent a ton of time on and found deeply disturbing. And as you say, there was lots of indications of some sort of money laundering activity in his properties whether or not he was directly complicit in it. So then the way that the Steele dossier was taken and BuzzFeed over your strenuous objections, your whole firm's and Steele's strenuous objections, BuzzFeed puts it online and it's all out there. The way it was taken was there were caveats. This isn't, uh, we're not swearing that it's true, but it is just as you described, a document that is credible and could provide leads. But it was being vetted, I think, in the public as every time something in it was confirmed as reflecting on good work by Fusion and we could trust this narrative. And anytime something in it was non-confirmed or as with the case of, say, Michael Cohen's visit to Prague, essentially disproved, it was taken as a real knock on the credibility of the overall exercise. Right. But. I'm hearing it shouldn't have been. Like, I'm hearing that you're saying you don't stand by, you never claimed everything was true, and even if the Michael Cohen stuff wasn't true, which we could talk about, but that shouldn't matter. It's not like it's now 90% true. That That's not how this document should be examined. It was, it was certainly misinterpreted widely when BuzzFeed, it, you know, decided to put it on the internet. And I think that whole affair, you know, remains regrettable in some ways. In others, it was probably salutary in that it did bring a lot of these issues to light in a very urgent kind of immediate way, for which we should all be, I guess, thankful. The document itself has a great deal of credibility. Key allegations from the document, such as the fact that the Kremlin was, in fact, trying to intervene in our politics to elect Donald Trump, have proven to be true. And we're way out ahead of the U.S. intelligence and so, you know, over time, you can say that much of this document has borne out and remains credible. We are as confident in Chris's professional abilities and the credibility of his work today as we ever were, in fact, more so. Has this been good for business? It's been a wash, I'd say. Um, we, you know, we've continued to— Great for brand extension. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, if Trump's steak <laughs> can fail but still help the Trump brand, right. what are you guys doing wrong? Yeah. I mean, the thing that we don't really love is being depicted as some sort of appendage of the Democratic Party. 
you know, there's not really a bunch of Democratic partisans at the company. All the principals are former journalists. And so we find that a little annoying. And in fact, you know, up until this, we had a lot of Republican-oriented clients. We still have some, but, you know, we have lost a few. Yeah? Yeah. Are you not going to take political, Democratic political business going forward? It depends. I mean, you know, we're a business, so we'll see what people bring in and whether it looks like it'll be fun. I mean, you know, we run a business, but we're also in it for the fun. So, you know, we'll do things that we think are interesting and worthwhile. And certainly, we think that the president should not be reelected. And if someone were to come along and ask us to help in that effort, we would very seriously consider that. Crime in progress. Yes, it is. Inside the Steele dossier and the Fusion GPS investigation of Donald Trump, written by the co-founders of that company, Peter Fritsch and Glenn Simpson. Glenn has joined me here today. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker was on Pod Save America the other day, maybe even today, and he was asked to assess why California Senator Kamala Harris dropped out of the presidential race. Graciously, Senator Booker didn't say, well, with me in the race, she knew she couldn't win. Woo-hoo. Nope, he did not say that. He did not say that. He did say this. We are, as Democrats now have a system where clearly uh, a black woman dropped out of this race uh, because she, she didn't have the resources she needed to continue. And I have to say, this analysis seems quite deficient. First of all, yes, Kamala Harris is of African-American ancestry. And yes, African-Americans as a whole have much fewer resources and access to, say, moneyed channels than white Americans. I don't think a high maternal mortality rate among black women has much bearing on Kamala Harris specifically. I don't think a high incarceration rate has much bearing on Kamala Harris, except for the fact that she was a fairly tough prosecutor, put quite a few people in jail. But I will interpret these two points as some factoids that Booker was using to illustrate, accurately illustrate, that in the United States, yes, African Americans face challenges in general, that their challenges go beyond the economic, but also that they are economic. But if you want to examine, let us also fully note some other facts that Kamala Harris's father was a Stanford economics professor. He's from Jamaica, but her mother was a cancer researcher. Shamala Gopalan was born in what is now India, then it was under the British flag. She is ethnically South Asian, and Harris was raised pretty much solely by her mother, some aunts, some family members. Her father was, according to her sister, not very present in the girls' lives. I am not suggesting for a second that Kamala Harris, who attended Howard University and who identifies and certainly is part of the black community, very similar background in some ways to Barack Obama. I'm not suggesting that she's not part of the black community, that you shouldn't apply the label, the experiences African-American on her or to her. But what I am saying is that the explanation of her failed campaign as hinging on her status as an African-American and further extrapolating that because of that, she had a hard time raising money. It seems really tenuous to me. Among factors that get in the way of that narrative is that she is quite connected to the South Asian community. And the medium, as long as we're talking about the deficits of the black community, at least economically, we should note that the median household income among Asians is 39% higher than that of the median American. And Indian Americans have an income of almost double the national median income. 
Also, Kamala Harris's husband is a well-connected corporate lawyer. He's white, and Kamala was a prestigious fundraiser in California when she was a senator. And as a Bay Area native, she's tapped into a lot of Silicon Valley wealth. And, and this is really important, before her campaign stopped connecting with voters, she showed a really profound fundraising propensity. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders claims to have raised the most money so far, $18.2 million in the first six weeks of his campaign, followed by California Senator Kamala Harris, $12 million, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, $7 million, and businessman Andrew Yang, $1.7 million. That was in the first quarter, and Harris didn't really improve on that. So I would suggest that her lack of connection with voters stymied her fundraising more than her lack of fundraising stymied her connection with voters. And it all goes back to the further point that there were a variety of factors way, way down on the list, if it even belongs at all, is the fact that Kamala Harris is African-American. Let us think about Cory Booker's diagnosis for a second. It's of an African-American candidate without built-in avenues to fundraising and access to family wealth. You know who that description does apply to? Yeah, it's Michael Bloomberg. No, it's not. It's Cory Booker. So I'm not calling Cory Booker disingenuous. I'm just saying that Cory Booker in that assessment was being opportunistic. He used a neutral question to highlight a talking point that he would like highlighted. He took it as an opportunity to talk about himself. Cory Booker is, after all, a good politician. Just maybe not good enough or fortunate enough to raise all of the money of some of his more advantaged rivals. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader is just producer, but you might remember him as the compiler of the infamous intelligence document about former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulrooney, the tungsten philofax. Christina DeJosa, just producer, thanks for coming in. I see the Presbyterian blue hose are in action against Furman, and while I know you have no connection to the team, the state of South Carolina, you are Presbyterian. It's not really the point. I just like saying the blue hose. The jest. Oh, I see my old alma mater. The Oceanside Sailors are facing off against their tough East Nassau County opponent, the Farmingdale Dalers. You know, whenever the Dalers face the Sailors, throw the records out the window. But this time it's personal. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>